From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. Each episode, we share new discoveries in the history of American enterprise and its impact on the world, made by researchers using our collections. My name is Sebastian Teufel. I'm from the University of Bayreuth in Germany. Now, what brings me to Hagley, it's um, the great amount of good sources that you have here, um, especially from the railroad industries, which is a very extensive um, source that you can use for different questions, but the question I ask in particular, there's some very good material here for that kind of research. My research is basically a history of a concept called money illusion and how that has affected social relations um, in different countries. I'm looking at the United States, at Germany and England, but obviously when I'm in Hagley I'm, I'm looking at US history. And the concept of money illusion some, something that economists and psychologists have been working with basically states that people are not really able to see how much a dollar is worth. So, for example, when they get a raise in their paycheck, they're automatically happy, even though there might have been a rise in prices going on, which means they're materially worse off after this raise, but they're still happy, and vice versa when they get a reduction in their paycheck, they get really angry even though the situation might have been a deflation, so prices have been falling, and they would have a larger real income afterwards, and they would still be less happy. That's what people claim who think that money illusion exists, and I'm not so much interested whether this concept is, is actually true or not, but I thought it is an interesting starting point to ask whether the perception of monetary values in different countries and at different times has somehow influenced the social relations when it comes to adjusting changes in monetary values. So the time period that I'm looking at is basically the 50 years from the 1870s to the 1920s when you had major changes um, in monetary values. You had a long deflation in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s when prices over the long term were falling. And you had basically 25 years of um, more or less great inflation afterwards. And the question I wanted to ask is, to what extent do people at these times actually perceive these monetary changes? How do they somehow feed it in into their conversation, into their into their bargaining, into into everything that's going on in the in the general conversation. And to do that here in Hagley I'm looking at basically sources about wage negotiations between employers and employees and how they discuss these changes when it comes to adjusting salaries and wages. Because obviously that's in economic theory, you would say there's an automatic adjustment. You know, there's an inflation, so wages rise basically to the, to the level to keep the wages more or less stable. And in a deflation, when prices are going down, 
companies kind of need to reduce the wages to keep um, keep it stable. But in reality, employees and even employers do not really have this kind of um, thinking. So you don't really accept a reduction in your wages just because the company says our revenues are going down. So obviously you need to do that. But it's not clear how in history that was actually communicated, how it worked. So we need to look at the sources to figure out how did it happen and when when the changes take place. Well, the interesting thing about this period that I'm looking at between the 1870s and the early 20th century is that this was um, a period called the classic gold standard, which means that at least countries in the Western world they would all base their currency on gold, which has basically a global price, which also means that all currencies have a stable exchange rate, and which also means that um, these larger tendencies of deflation and inflation would happen in all countries that were on a gold standard. So you would have this period of deflation in the United States, you would see it in England and you would see it in Germany, and you would also see the same inflation starting in 1896-1897 in all countries because the gold production at that time was um, increased to a, to a great degree. But from a comparative perspective in these countries the whole um, institutional system is so different and the whole idea of how economic actors should engage with e with each other, they are so different that we can expect to see differences in how these um, changes in monetary values translate into changes in social relations. That's my idea. Because also the late 19th century is when, for example, in Germany and the United States, um, these two countries really diverge when it comes to institutional um, systems with regard to labor relations, with regards to competitive um, policies and so on. And I, I wouldn't claim that changes in monetary values is like the sole triggering factor, but it is one factor that historians haven't really looked at when it comes to explaining these changes or finding explanations why they diverge at this point and to such a degree that today we would talk of two completely different cultures even though the, the differences weren't that large in the 1870s than you would expect um, from the perspective of today. Interest, the interesting thing is that um, like the, the farmers that were kind of at the heart of this um, debate, I guess, um, they had similar problems as well with the, um, the falling prices. They would have a hard time um, paying off their debt so the farmers in Germany and the United States in that sense were kind of materially similar off. Um, but in Germany there is very little discussion whether they would um, support any kind of inflationary uh, measures. You would see a lot of this idea we need um, tariffs to protect um, ourselves, so you would have this debate. But this is something I want to find out, to what extent um, these, these movements um, would be similar or maybe would be different. Maybe the German farmers didn't have this kind of um, idea that they could draw on that you could actually 
monetize silver and start an inflation and, and be better off because of that. All I know is you don't see that debate in Germany and it's not been written about, so that's an open question to me. And, and another thing like the, um, the trade issue when it comes to tariff, obviously when you look at it from an English perspective where they have free trade since the 1840s, um, they need to discuss the rising prices and the rising costs of living in the late 19th century oftentimes in, in different terms because they would compare it to um, high-tariff countries like Germany and the United States. So um, the whole debate kind of shifts depending on what, what these countries have been talking about for the last decades when it comes to explanations for why these things happen. And the perceptions of these people in these countries are obviously different depending on what was going on. I guess I can give you some of the most interesting findings that I that I get from the sources that I've looked at so far. Um, one thing that surprised me is how little normative value was attached to this idea of a stable income when it comes to changes in monetary values. I would have just assumed that when there's an inflation that workers should be allowed to adjust their, their salaries and when there's a deflation then I mean I would realize they would protest but I, I thought at the bottom there would be some acceptance that this might take place but neither the employers nor the employees seems seem to attach any sort of normative value to that idea to a large extent in the sources you can really only find in the 1910s, maybe a little earlier, this idea that you should adjust wages to changes in monetary values. And in one source, um, the representative of, the, of this union that was trying to get an, an increase in wages um, said, well, last time we were arguing, um, well, the the work is getting harder and um, it's becoming more dangerous, all these kind of arguments that would usually go into these um, wage bargaining um, agreements, that that is why people should have a, a higher salary. And then they said, well, this was not a decision made just by the employers and the employee employees, but it was a decision that was arbitrated, so there was a board from the outside basically making this adjustment which was kind of specific to the railroad industry but which kind of helps to see how this debate was was going on and this representative of the union said well we, we argued so much about why we should get this raise in pay and when the award came they said well they should get a 10% raise because of the rising cost of living that was basically their sole justification for why this race should take place and he was himself kind of surprised by that so when he made this argument in the next round because of course prices kept rising so they needed to do this every two or three years he said okay so we we include this now more explicit that there has been a rising and cost of living and then of course you have this whole debate who is affected by this rising cost of living? What is the cost of living? 
is this really a concept that we can measure by the percentage point? Um, and the employers would say, well, it has been low, and the employees would say, no, it has been very high. And if you look at Chicago, if you look at Baltimore, um, obviously this becomes a very messy thing. And this is um, the whole issue that is attached to that. I mean, how much is a dollar worth? You can see how complicated this idea of monetary values becomes when you apply it to these kind of practical um, questions. Um, and this is when they would start referring to different economists who came up with um, these ideas. And um, so this is when the whole thing becomes much more explicit. Um, but what you can also see earlier on, like even in this period of deflation, it's not the employers that would argue that there has been a falling or declining cost of living, something I would have e expected because this is a, an argument that is basically there. It's it would be very easy for an employer to say, well, you only need to pay so little for, for the food and the rent now compared to 10 years ago. It's obvious, the, obvious that you should accept this um, deduction in your paycheck. But they don't do this. They would always just refer to their own kind of um, revenue perspective. They would never use this argument that it, that you could use or that, that would make sense to use. While on the other hand, individual workers already in the 1880s, when they write the individual letters to the superintendent um, asking for a, a rise in, in pay, they would say, of course, they're, they're doing hard work and, and so on, but they would sometimes already refer to individual rising costs of living, that the rents in their town would be increased by so much, or the food prices have gone up like 200, 300%. They would be usually exaggerate these kind of um, things because it's not a very clearly defined concept. And it's usually not successful. I mean, the referring to the cost of living at that time doesn't impress the superintendent in any ways. They would accept a rise in pay if you have been have been working for this company for a couple of years or whether you can actually threaten to leave it because you have a better offer. These would be things that would actually make the superintendent give you a rise in pay but not referring to the cost of living. And behind that, and this is something you don't really see that in the, in the sources explicitly, but something that is going on. Of course, there's a great material change in how welfare is distributed. Because during this time of inflation, workers should have gotten a much higher raise in pay to stay, to, to keep like their, their real income at the same level. And even though they would be referring to that, they are not able to actually get this kind of increase. And this is interesting um, to see and something that I need to do more statistical work to actually figure out how this distribution um, works out. But I think it is pretty obvious that at this time inflation really works how many economists um, thought it did, referring to money illusion, that employees are not able to get the same increase in pay that the increase in, in prices would suggest. Um, 
maybe in, in the long-term perspective that's that has been a debate that has um, been going on in economics especially since the 1970s when we had this stagflation um, period when you had rising prices when you had an inflation but workers um, would succeed or at least economists would assume in actually anticipating these um, inflationary changes so they would be able to bargain to a degree that they would keep the same level because changes in monetary values that's something that's going on all the time so this adjustment needs to take place all the time and the adjustment takes place in different contexts and it takes place in different institutional settings so it, the way it is going on changes over time and of course it also changes whether you have a lot of individual people you kind of need to look out for themselves or whether you have these very large groups of workers that are unionized and that argue in very general terms because they would not ask for individual pay rises but for a general increase of like 10 percent so these debates are attached to this to these general concepts of inflation and deflation in very different ways because when you negotiate individually you can much more easily refer to cost of living on the one side but then also to your individual um, merits but for unions they have a, a higher incentive I guess when they use this concept to refer to these general increases to this concept of inflation this is something economic historians have found that during this period of deflation workers receive a, a rise in real income even though they might not necessarily perceive themselves right. that that happened and even though they would try to not make this um, deduction happen so there were a lot of strikes that tried to prevent this um, deduction in pay but they were oftentimes not successful. So the management would decide there's a 10% um, deduction across the board and then usually workers would protest and usually they would not be successful. And after that happened you see all these kind of individuals, um, individual workers trying to get the individual rises, writing letters to superintendents or, or to, to management um, asking for a rise in pay because they have been doing such great work or because they have stayed with the company for so long. Um, so in, in this period you have, a, you have deductions across the board but then all the time you have like individuals getting their rise, rise in pay. So from this individual perspective the things that happen are not necessarily the same that you would see happening from a social perspective which of course makes it harder to actually connect the individual to to the larger things that are happening so that's that's kind of the irony like which is attached to this concept of money illusion workers were better off materially even though they didn't think they were and then in the inflation they were worse off even though they might have thought they were quite successful in negotiating the new agreements but in historical perspective of course that's a very superficial um, finding because 
during this period of deflation, many individuals, of course, were worse off and their paychecks were very unstable. So you cannot say they were all better off. You, you can just say from this general perspective of economic history, they were better off. But we cannot assume that they should perceive that way, that way individually. Like what you would expect in Germany is that um, the changes were less extreme because you wouldn't have this this whole concept or that idea that um, labor should be this kind of commodity that answers to supply and demand in, in an instant, something that would be much more assumed in, in England or the United States. Um, one company is the Reading Company. Uh-huh. They have a lot of um, lines, like it's a you know an, an umbrella company in a way, and very large. And they have some very good sources, especially for the 1870s and 1880s. So they have good um, records of correspondence between the superintendents and the workforce and the management. They also have some interesting um, records on the Pinkerton um, detective agency. These people would go spy on labor and then write their reports and sometimes the reports are very dry and not very interesting but sometimes they really talk to the people and um, what their situation is like and then write a more extensive report and that of course is very useful to get an idea of what the mood of the labor force was like at a certain point in time. yeah, it's been very useful. And I also look at the Pennsylvania Railroad Company, which obviously is a very large collection. And they have some very good sources, mostly for the early 20th century. So they have all the proceedings um, for these wage arbitrations that went on with different representatives from management and labor trying to come to terms with um, how the wages should change um, given certain conditions. So they this would really be like a theater piece in a way. You would have um, people defending one position and then people answering to that and people answering to that and then they have witnesses um, called and they would <coughs> explain what in their opinion the situation is like. They would have experts, statisticians and all those people coming in and that's a very useful source as well. I've been interested in this concept of money illusion for a long time. I did a minor in um, economic and social psychology. And this is when I learned about this concept. And then I thought about the implications that really has for, for the degree that wealth is distributed in different ways if that concept actually holds true. Because if it is true, then inflation has a huge impact on who, who gets the money during that time. And I thought that is very interesting. And when I learned a bit about um, the history of economic theory, there are times when economists would somehow assume that money illusion was at play. And in their theories, you can kind of see how that 
that works, why they would argue in favor of inflation. And then this whole thing breaks down during the 1970s and then they assume things are working in a different way. And I, I've been thinking for a long time that from a historical perspective it just doesn't make sense to assume that the world has been working according to the same laws all the time. Something economists like to claim or like to point out, they want their theory to be true for, for all times and I, I don't think that is true. And I do believe that when there are these changes in economic thinking and in economic theory, there must be something going on in, in society that can help explaining these changes. It's not like economic theory was bad back then and then it became better over time and now we have this perfect theory, but it is always <coughs> interconnected or related to these other changes in society. Thank you for listening to Stories from the Stacks. For more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society and the Hagley Museum and Library, visit us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G.